hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. You're listening to Queer Money episode number 182. Today we're talking about creative entrepreneurship. What is it and how can it make your business thrive? We're talking today with Peter Krask, who helps entrepreneurs and artists tap into their creativity by providing support and direction in creating and running their businesses and completing amazing projects. Peter was recently selected to be a dedicated mentor at the New Museum in New York City for year six, the New Inc. program. For insight on tapping your creativity to grow your business and your brand, get ready. Now, on with the show. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. This podcast is sponsored by Capital One. Capital One is redesigning the banking experience by offering simple, straightforward, and seamless ways for you to bank from almost anywhere. So banking fits into your life, not the other way around. So welcome, Peter Crash to Queer Money. We're excited to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Thank you. So you've come on the show to talk to us about creative entrepreneurship and I think that's very intriguing because David and I consider ourselves entrepreneurs, and I think some days we're way less creative than others, and sometimes I don't know if our creativity is even that good. <laughs> so what is what is creative entrepreneurship, please? Well, I think in many ways it's actually kind of redundant because entrepreneurship is creative just as a thing. It's, you know, involves imagination. It involves making things. It involves figuring out how to communicate with an audience or tell a story. And it's about a very personal expression. I think one thing that creatives and entrepreneurs share in particular is, you know, the sense of satisfaction of something that's yours and something that you've made your own. But I do think there is, you know, We have a lot of false dividing lines that, you know, only people who work in one field are creative. And if you're an entrepreneur, you know, somehow you're not. And I've been self-employed for the bulk of my working life and in creative professions, but I've always been struck by how similar the questions are kind of across both arenas. So that's creative entrepreneurship, I think. So I think a lot of people probably assume that most entrepreneurs are, are like your your traditional or typical stereotypical CEO, and they're very analytical, and it's very A plus B equals C, and it's about structure and organization and sequences. But you're saying that there's there's more involved in that. Yeah. I mean, I think that is certainly a part of it. And certainly with, let's say, a creative expression you know, that begins with an impulse or a response to something or an idea that you're like, huh, I didn't think of it this way, or why has nobody done X? I think an entrepreneur asks that exact same question, whether it's with a product or a service or um, some kind of communication. And they may not know what that thing is right at the start. So there has to be some period of discovering it, pulling it out of themselves, you know, sort of letting your imagination roam pretty freely to figure out what that thing is, you know. So it's a process of discovery in the same way that 
artistic creativity is a process of discovery. And, you know, there is a time for rigor and planning and sequences, but I don't necessarily know that that's the starting place for entrepreneurship. You know, in the same way, if I'm doing art, there is a place for rigor and steps and sequences. But again, it comes down to an initial impulse or, uh, you know, there's some inner nudge you get about this thing that doesn't exist that you want to exist and put in the world in some way. So I think that impulse travels across both areas. Right. I think when we look at the the base root of the word, create, uh, a creative is someone who creates something. And I think when you look at probably most of the most well-known individuals who have started businesses today, I think of people like Elon Musk, Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg <laughs> Steve Jobs, all of them had this like you said, they had this spark or this idea that they wanted to build something, wanted yeah. to put into place something that doesn't doesn't exist, and that means they wanted to create something because yeah. they wanted to create something. They are naturally then have a creative streak in them. Yeah, and I think too, sort of how you develop that in and of itself is a creative act um, because nobody sort of gets it right the first time. If it's something that you're dreaming up, you know, it's going to take a couple tries, a couple different ways of coming at it before you figure out what the thing actually is and sort of how best to get that thing in the world. And it's the same thing with, you know, making a painting or writing a book. You don't quite know what it is. You have to do a draft and then you have to revise the draft and then you have to revise that draft until you're very super clear about what the thing itself is. I think that to me is probably, I think to me, that's probably the hardest part of entrepreneurship, right? Yes, is always. We've always seen this, this diagram of the roller coaster of emotions for right. entrepreneurs. And that's because of this idea of not being able to, God, if we could just nail it the first time. Yeah. You know, and it's sad because I think that so many of us, we look at somebody who has become successful and said, oh, they must have done that right away. Or they, we just assume that they nailed it the first time or it right. came so easy to them, yeah. but we don't know their backstory or right. how many we, prototypes they built. <laughs> that's right. And nobody's seen their trash can with all the discarded, you know, <laughs> attempts. I mean, my classic example of that is Julia Child. She didn't become Julia Child until she was 55. And, you know, there was a lot of other things she did before then. But to become that iconic figure, she didn't figure that out until pretty late in life and, you know, had an extraordinary career after that point and sort of became the first of many things. So to speak to your point, you know, looking at that, you would say, huh, what an amazing figure she was and what an amazing story she had. But the thing we always forget is she didn't do it until she was 55. So, you know, there's, I think that's one of the challenges of the world we're in now is that everything moves very quickly. We're expected to respond very quickly and generate very quickly. And it sort of goes against the grain of creativity, which can be a slow process or, you know, requires some time out away 
so something can actually emerge because it's not something you can will. You know, if, if you could will it, you know, we'd all be <laughs> doing it every day, you know, instead of like finding what is that magic thing, you know, yeah. and the magic thing that other people respond to. Yeah, I would definitely agree. It kind of reminds me of, I think, the lead up to when the first iPhone came out and the stories of how Steve Jobs would say, I don't care whether we said this is the date it's going to come out. If it's not right, we're not going to put it out. Yeah, there's and no reason to, right? So many companies today force this creativity by a timeline. Right. Um, or, you know, an interesting example is, you know, the Elizabeth Holmes saga with Theranos. Of, oh, yeah. You know, independent of the scam, there was <laughs> an interesting idea there that, you know, gives the ultimate proof that you cannot force that thing to happen. Right. And she had all those people trying to force this thing to happen, and you can't do it. It's just not possible. Yeah. So is everyone creative? I think they are. I think most people sort of have, you know, get very hangdog about it. You know, we get very quickly labeled like, oh, I'm not creative. Or, you know, we all had that one teacher who was like, well, what are you doing? You know, who do you think you are? Um, it doesn't take a lot to sort of snuff that out or, you know, get somebody to clamp down <laughs> about that. And I think mainly it's, you know, something that you have to exercise and something that you have to make room for. And, um, and it's something that can be very uncomfortable at the same time. And there's a lot around us that sort of points us in the other direction. Interestingly, I think the world of work now and as things are moving are forcing people to be really in touch with their creativity because people are expected to do much more and to be more self-sufficient and handle many aspects of a project or communication. And, you know, you have to find solutions very quickly. And, you know, finding solutions is about creativity. I'm thinking of, you know, one of my clients I've worked with for a long time is the Today Show. And I've been with them for about 20 years. And, you know, so I go back to when there was a very sort of clear line of production and crew and cameramen, you know, now producers have to be able to film a story on their phone and edit it on their phone when before nobody had to do that. And so that's calling on them to exercise creativity in a way they have not probably anticipated or thought about before. And they may not think of it as creativity or a creative act, but it is. It's not just an expectation. It's, you know, using some other part of your being aside from a linear I'm here to work mode. Right. Do you do you think some entrepreneurs feel like they've got to either they feel societal pressure or just their I guess their thinking error possibly that they need to kind of assume sort of CEO mode and say, okay, I got to be focused on the numbers. I've got to be focused on the logistics. I've got to be focused on the structure and the organization. And I've got this creative idea. I want to get this to market. Now that I've done that, I've, I must move into CEO mode. Right. Um, that's a really good question because it's, I think it, A, first depends on the size of the entrepreneur's outfit. I've, in many ways, I've been kind of a one-man band for much of my work life. 
and have had to wear multiple hats in that sense. So, you know, but like I have an accountant, I have freelance staff that I work with and I have sort of go-to people for certain things, but you know, day to day, the bulk of it falls on me. And, and I think that happens to most entrepreneurs, certainly at the beginning when they're starting out. And it's such an interesting question because it assumes a body of knowledge that you may not have as an entrepreneur and sort of educating yourself and learning those things is also about creativity and taking on that kind of knowledge really also informs your ability to create whatever the thing is that you're creating. Ideally, always one wants to get back to the point where you know, you were just making the thing instead <laughs> of making all the decisions, right? You always hear that story later down the road of sort of like once somebody gets to the very top of the thing, they're like, oh, I miss... I miss being the creative. I miss the yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. And well, so how does somebody get back to that if they've gotten to the top and either they're not happy there or the business hasn't gotten to where they would like it to go, how would they get back to the creative side of things if they, oh, even gosh. though they have like the CEO hat on? Right. That's... A really difficult question. <laughs> um, I, th I would say... It's probably very situational, right? It really yeah. kind of depends on the business that they've built or, or the product or whatever it is that they're trying to get back to creating. Right. And I think too, it's maybe there's a very definite choice to be made of making that part of the work then. You know, maybe you carve out that space as part of your responsibility or delegation or, I don't know, you maybe have a spectacular midlife crisis and, <laughs> and sort of be like, that's it, I'm done and I'm starting over with something else. I mean, that's always another, we've heard a lot of those stories too. And I think in a funny way, what that points to is a kind of creative itch of, I know there's something else I can do, you know, and I know there's some energy I'm not using or I'm not using my energy in the best possible way because I'm concerned with all of these managerial issues instead of, you know, this fundamental creative issue, the thing that got me excited in the first place. So I'd be curious what your listeners had to say about sort of their experience of that. Well, I think it's a, when you, when you think about some of these serial entrepreneurs, that's probably what's happening, right? Mm -hmm. it, you have, I think you have the, Ideators, the ones who just constantly, and John says this, I vomit ideas all the time. Okay. Um, and so I guess you, you maybe you get to a point where you can just focus on the creative because you are able to build a good team around yourself, right. people who can fulfill the part of the business that allows your ideas to come to fruition. And then you, you can jump back into the creative process. But I would venture to say that there are probably some people who have learned to be creative, as you've said, in every aspect of what they do. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about people, I, I worked in IT for such a long time, and so many people, you would label them as logical, but creating a process system or creating code, all of that. There's so many different ways to do it, but you can, mm -hmm. like, if you can find a unique way to do it, oftentimes that's when it becomes really successful. Correct. And I think my basic feeling is that sort of even though the specifics are different, I think across all of these spectrums or disciplines, um, 
you know, the basic creative questions are pretty much the same and the kinds of issues you face are the same. And even if the answers vary because of the specific area in which you're working, you know, fundamental questions are fundamental questions. I mean, we can go back to Leonardo da Vinci or Michelangelo, who, you know, were architects and draftsmen and painters and sculptors. And, you know, so the medium is very different. And the problems with those mediums are very different. But the basic questions and the basic choices are pretty much consistent across the way. And I would say that's the same you know, whether you're a scientist or a mathematician or an engineer or a coder, as you mentioned, um, or sort of any profession, you know, there's, there's just basic questions that have to be asked to get to an interesting solution. So, so you're saying that basically, if, if Mrs. Kirkendall back in the fifth grade labeled me as not a creative, because she didn't think what I was doing in the art room was very, creative, artistic. artistic. (laughs) And I have believed that all my life that I can ask myself some of these questions and get to this idea of maybe I am creative or that there is an outlet for my creativity in what I'm doing. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, your finger painting skills may have been (laughs) lacking and and if in fifth grade, your finger painting skills are off, I don't, you know, maybe Mrs. Crickendall had a point, but <laughs> even as it may, um, you may not have that particular form of expression, but for instance, in creating your podcast, that had to call on all sorts of creative decisions and just thinking about the kind of content and information you wanted to get out is an act of imagination. You know, you made this thing that didn't exist. You found an audience that was underserved and thought, how am I going to reach them? And how am I going to give them all of this information? And um, that's pretty creative. So take that, Mrs. Kirkendall. (laughs) (laughs) I'll draw outside the lines if I want to. That's right. (laughs) And now a quick word from our sponsor. Capital One's checking and savings accounts have no fees and no minimums. And with one of the best saving rates in America, you can rest easy watching your money grow with no fees to bring you down. You can open an account in about five minutes, which means you are only about five minutes away from getting your savings to grow with one of the nation's best rates. So you say there's a special relationship with being queer and being creative. What is that relationship? Well, it's, you know, it's, it's always tricky to talk about, but I, I do believe it sincerely, although it has the potential to sort of play into stereotypes and generalizations, be that as it may. I think, you know, growing up as a closeted kid, or at least knowing on some level that you are not like the other people around you, even if you can't articulate what that is or you don't understand it, there is a sense of you know, danger that comes with that. And I think queer kids in general sort of learn very well how to read the environment around them. And they're Mm -hmm. very attuned to surfaces. They're very attuned to communication. They're very attuned to sort of, you know, roles and sort of what's expected. And, you know, they develop that as we develop that as a means of survival 
But at the same time, it's, you know, fantastic information because you're just paying attention in a, a very different way. And I think something about that experience creates a different way of being in the world and a way of looking at the world. And I think too, um, and it's, it's all, you know, it's so fascinating because we're at such a moment of profound change with that. You know, when I grew up, I'm 52, you know, gay marriage wasn't even on the horizon or a possibility. So I never imagined that for myself. And I always imagined that something else was possible, that there was some other way. And I think that basic question of I'm not like this thing I'm supposed to be or I'm not like the thing I'm expected to be, but something else is possible is a profoundly creative question because really that's what being creative springs from that, that there is some other thing that is possible based on the circumstances I'm around or whatever environment I'm in or how I'm seeing the world. And I think, you know, in its own strange way, it's a very profound gift. And I think, too, I, it's something that most marginalized communities experience, and they experience it in different facets. But, I, you know, there's African-Americans talk a lot about code switching and how they communicate. And I think that's a very similar thing. But to have a separate language is a remarkable act of creativity. I don't know, do you guys know about, I think this was invented in the 40s, 1940s, the language Polari? No. no okay, so there are these, I'm like 90% sure this is correct, 90% sure this is correct. Um, but there were some British gentlemen, and I'm pretty sure it was around the Second World War, invented their own, they were both gay, and they invented their own language for gay people called Polari, P-O-L-A-R-I. And they used it as this way of communicating sort of across the land so they could be in public and talking amongst themselves about somebody that they thought was, you know, really hot. <laughs> and nobody knew what they were talking about. And, and if you read any of it, it sounds like absolute nonsense. But, I mean, that's an incredibly creative response to a structure that's oppressive and a language that can't accommodate what you want to say. Mm -hmm. um, so I just toss that out there. That's interesting. Isn't there a planet called Polaris? <laughs> or am I confusing that with a computer <laughs> software? A star? Oh, a star. Yeah, a star maybe. Anyway, so how can queer entrepreneurs take advantage of the two, being queer and then this apparent innate or potential creativity? Well, I think part of it is really sort of owning it and sort of paying pretty close attention to it because I think, you know, it becomes so unconscious at the same time, right? Um, you know, you're growing up and you're just absorbing all of this information. And, you know, at the time you probably understand it as I was not, you know, the sports loving kid. And I was sure I was the one in the gym class who was like, you know, please, Jesus, don't pick me for the team. But, <laughs> um, but learning sort of how not to give away that panic or, you know, you just sort of absorb that. So I think there is a, an opportunity to really sort of sit down and just listen for it. Because um, I, you know, for me, creativity is really about listening um, and listening to yourself and trying to be as in tune with yourself as you can. Um, and I think, you know, just that basic question of something else being possible is you know, one all entrepreneurs ask, right? And that there is some other way, there is some better way, there's some 
truer way. And, you know, we all sort of invent our own way of being queer. And, you know, so I think that's really interesting, powerful motivation to express that in your entrepreneurship as well. And I think that there's, there's, we're starting to see such a huge acceptance of the value of that queerness coming Mm -hmm. into business because living within this kind of narrow societal norm, businesses are starting to run out of uniqueness, things that help them to stand out, things that help them to say to the consumer, I'm better than that product or our business is better than that business because we do this or we have that. Well, sometimes this and that have come from people who are outside of the norm. Absolutely. Not not just the way we look, but the way we think, the way we interact with people and the people we love. Right. And also too that we are, and it's, you know, this is such a charged question right now, but you know, their potential consumers are not all the people who fit that norm now. Right. And and I think, you know, we all want product and information that connects with who we are and what our needs are. And we are able now to ask for that in a way that, you know, we couldn't 10 years ago even or 20 years ago. And I think the best entrepreneurs respond to the worlds that's changing around them rather than sort of digging their heels and saying, this is the one thing that we do, you know, come hell or high water. Um, (laughs) So are you saying then that queer people can make all the base shopping malls that look the same and have the same stores at every corner. They've been trying to do that for years. Go away. (laughs) Can have some variety. There's there's a reason why shopping malls are dying, right? Yeah. (laughs) Are there, so I'm curious, do you see common creativity blocks in queer business people and and owners? I'm wondering if, if we're even to the extent that, you know, the general population who, pursues entrepreneurship feels like they've got to, I've, I've done my creative thing. Now I've got to move on to the, the being the boss man. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wondering if, if queer people maybe have that same societal pressure and do you see common creativity blocks? And if so, how can, how can they overcome them? Well, I think they're, the short answer is yes. And I think a lot of the blocks actually tend to arise still from you know, kind of like residual shame or residual sort of feeling of, am I really okay in a way? And, you know, sort of speaking from one's truest self through their work is still a very fraught thing. One question I always work with uh, with my clients is the question of sort of, who is this for? And on the surface, it seems to be a pretty simple question. You know, this product is for this consumer or this artwork is for this gallery. But once you start kind of digging into that question, you know, who is this for? And this is where sort of blocks come up is, you know, that sort of Mrs. Kirkendall, let's say. (laughs) There is some part of you that may still be proving to her that, you have something to express. You know, I had, for instance, I had, when I was in graduate school, 
I was in a very small program and there were only two people in it. And the first year, the main professor for the program, and it was an intensive one-on-one study, was quite ill and missed a good chunk of the school year. So the second year, they brought in a new professor and my fellow student dropped out of the program. So it was just me. And the very first class, I had presented my portfolio of writing and uh, he sort of, he had read them and he sort of dropped it on my desk and kind of wrinkled his nose and said, I have no idea how you got accepted into this program. <laughs> wow. And I was just devastated because I was like, geez, you know, the first year was a complete washout. The professor was dying and, you know, <laughs> I did my best. And here I am with, you know, trying to make a fresh start and, and this professor just kicked me in the balls, basically. So, and I, you know, there's a pedagogical argument that people could say, well, you know, he was just challenging you. But I do know this, that for many years thereafter in my writing, and I doesn't like I sat down and said like, darn it, I'm going to show you. Um, But there was a real element of, I'm going to prove this guy wrong if it kills me. And, you know, that can be a powerful motivating force but it's also something that's going to trip you up down the road because, you know, you outgrow that mindset, you outgrow that expression. Um, you have more things to say, more interesting things to say and different experience. But, you know, that voice can still be in there. And I think for a lot of gay entrepreneurs or queer entrepreneurs, you know, that's an interesting it's just an echo. And I think, too, there still is, as we engage more and more with the corporate world and sort of these bigger businesses who want to engage with us, there still is a great deal of uncertainty about what their motivations are and sort of how reliable an ally they are. You know, I was here for World Pride in New York this summer, and, you know, there was obviously a great deal of conversation about the number of corporate sponsored things in the parade in the celebration and 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 it's a re- you know I think it's a very fair question to ask but you know that uncertainty I think we can still carry that into the room with us you know sort of how safe is this environment do I need to butch it up you know because of my work as a floral designer I'm sort of lucky in that regard that everybody just expects you to be a, a flaming homosexual when you walk in the room. So own it. That kind of, you know, and I have pretty good gay voice as well. So I, you know, there's I don't experience that same pressure, but I do know that there are environments I'm in with a client or a lot of the corporate clients I've worked with sort of just part of my radar is paying attention to that. So I may have gotten off track, but no, I I think it's a great discussion because I think that John and I have talked about, and many of you have heard us tell this over and over again, that, that many of the decisions we made in our lives that hurt us financially, we seem to have found that they were anchored in feelings that we had about ourselves based on who we are and how we were treated when we were growing up yeah. and and not wanting to feel left out or different or we we wanted to acceptance from various groups of people and i think that def- definitely uh, comes into play in business and i i think that there's a real struggle in 
our community as to why is it that cis gay white men seem to be doing so well financially? Mm -hmm. And I say that in a kind of a very broad brush because right. we know that that that's that's not the case. Not every gay white man is financially successful, but at the time right now, we seem to be the ones who seem to be doing the best financially. And sadly, I think that part of that has to do with the simple fact that that's we're the ones that are most easily able to fit into the norms mm -hmm. of society. And so when we were sitting at the table in, in, the, in the corporate world, it was easy for them to just kind of see us right. and not label us as an outsider. Right. And, and until sort of, maybe we said something. <laughs> right. I mean, that goes back exactly to what I was saying earlier about sort of being able to read a surface, read an environment, read the code. And it, because of that, particularly as cis white men, you know, we can travel in camouflage in that yeah. sense and yeah. in a way that people of color can't or trans people can't. And yeah. so it's it's a very interesting question. So those those creativity blocks or any blocking, I guess, can can happen because of who we are or what we think of ourselves. But I would venture to say that the vast majority of those are false beliefs about ourselves. Absolutely. And we need, to, we need to figure out how to get rid yeah. of those. That's a creativity thing in and of itself, is creatively yeah. figuring out how to let go of that baggage. <laughs> right. Well, it's, you know, I think it all comes down to a sort of very basic question, which is kind of that, who do you think you are? You know, you yeah. don't have the right to say that. You don't have the right to be here. You don't have the right to say, this is how I see it, you know. Yeah. see it this way. We've heard that labeled as imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And one, you know, carrying a rainbow flag probably, but yeah. So it's, it's a very real question. And it's amazing to me sort of as much progress as there has been sort of, you know, how powerful that voice still can be and sort of how it can sneak in sort of when you least expect it to you. Okay. Right. So. Well, I think it's hard to overcome something that you've kind of been picking up since you've been like three or four years old uh -huh. and that you sort of grew up with. And most of us, you know, Gen Xers or older, maybe it's a little bit different for millennials and definitely centennial or uh, what, are they, what are they, centennials? What are they called? Centennials or Gen Z. Gen Z. Where we sort of had to move out of our parents' houses and be independent yeah. before we could actually finally say, okay, this is who I truly am. Yeah, you know that that's a little bit different. I think for the younger demographics in some many, parts of the country, not always, but many. Yeah, and so we, some of us, have sort of had this sort of shame blanketed on top of us until we were twenty or thirty or forty years old. Yeah, and then so it's kind of hard to say all of a sudden, okay, now I'm just super confident and totally yeah. open and comfortable with myself of being gay. Yeah. It's kind of a hard thing to to just just change. Yeah, well, and particularly still, I given our current political climate, all of those voices that we thought were going away during the Obama years um, are sort of now have the megaphone again mm -hmm. and feel completely empowered to continue to spread that message. And, you know, so it's, it, I think it is a lifelong struggle to sort of tune that out and subscribe to it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, when you reach a certain level of independence and success, I think you feel 
a little bit more empowered to own yeah. that. Um, I'm not saying it goes away completely, but I think from the outside perspective, it definitely feels like the people who have achieved that sort of level, now they have all the, the confidence and support in the world. Yeah. I'll tell you, I think but Billy Porter has figured out how to get rid of all of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah you think so. I mean, but you know, my, my guess is that there are maybe times of, of doubt and insecurities that, that still creep in, but he's figured out how to maybe to the extent that he can, at least publicly, Hide that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, and that's a very interesting creative question, too, because, you know, just from a process standpoint, there's always a point with a project where you're just like, oh, man, this thing sucks. <laughs> and I don't know what I'm doing. And I have no idea where to go with it. And then you have to go, you know, show up and get back to work on it. And, um, you know, so there is a kind of creative engagement, even with the doubt and, the not knowing and the the shame part of that. And if you're able to really engage with that creatively, I think it can really keep you alive and keep you sort of growing and pushing further and moving past those blocks so you can just recognize that like, oh, that's just poor Mrs. Kirkendall. I was going to say her again and be like, oh, shoot, that's Mrs. Kirkendall again. Um, You know, like, hey, Mrs. Kirkendall, I see you back there and I'm still doing my thing over here. So. Um, Do you think she listens to this podcast? Hell no. She was like <laughs> 65 years old then. Okay. So. <laughs> <laughs> she rests in she peace. Could, God love her. Yeah. Still be alive. It's yeah. true. She could be. Um, Healthcare is better today. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so kind of what I'm, what I'm hearing you say here towards the end is that, that, or the last part of what you were just saying is that there's, I think there's an opportunity for us to turn our creativity into um, one of our superpowers. One Absolutely. Of... And and I, I love that you said superpower because that's a word I use all the time with it because I really think it is. And I, I just to give an example of that, and I was, I've told this story before in another setting, but when I was in college, so this is 1988, 89, it was a big state school. I lived in the jock dorm and the bro dorm, the party dorm and Clearly, I was not, you know, destined to fit in in that environment. And for a good solid year, there was an, a concerted bullying campaign that went on. And it started out sort of very subtly. And then it just, you know, as people felt more emboldened to harass me, um, they did. And this was, you know, such a different time. There was no place to, in the school to go to. There was no, you know, administration policy about bullying. And at the the highest point of that experience, I just I was so baffled by it because I wasn't out even out at the time. I wasn't out to myself. I hadn't I had a lot of questions and I sort of knew, you know, that I liked boys, but I wasn't ready to say that publicly. But but I was just so puzzled why these guys A cared so much. Uh, you know, I kept to myself and I was not affecting them in any way. And I wound up writing an editorial for the school newspaper, which at the time was really the only important communication vehicle on campus. And in the editorial, I, you know, I sort of detailed my experience and then just asked my question, which was, why, why is this so important to you? And, and I also refuse to come out or not. I've, you know, like this was personal information and it's mine to do with what I want to do with it. And the interesting thing about that experience was, first of all, 
you know, no teacher ever asked me how I was. The RA never followed up on it. No administrator ever approached me. But the bullying stopped immediately, overnight. <laughs> and Power of the pen. Well, and it's funny. I had, you know, I, that was not my intent. I wasn't thinking like, this is how I'm going to take this on. But it was more, I was just so hurt and baffled. And I didn't know what else to do. And while I would not wish that experience on anyone, it profoundly shaped my sense of the power of creativity and the power of storytelling and the power of true expression to make some change in the world. And that, you know, like that is the one thing you have. And in that sense, it, you know, it was my superpower and it transformed my experience. So I, I always, since then, I have always believed in what a powerful thing that is and that it's something that we all have if, you know, we allow it to be there and work with it and have access to it. So, so yes, it is a superpower. So that's a great segue into my next question. It sounds like then that and possibly similar experiences helped inform what you would later become, and that is a creativity guide. What is a creativity guide? So a creativity guide is kind of many things. I'll make it sound mysterious, but it's really <laughs> it's really not. Um, I sort of call it like the project whisperer. So it's sort of three areas. It's kind of, you know, part therapist, part coach, um, but also someone who can get their hands dirty on a project with you. So let's say you have 10 ideas that you want to implement and you have no idea how to get started. As the creativity guide, I can help you sort of figure out what is the path and what are you doing? How are you going to do it? Um, and sort of hold your hand with you along the way. Because in my own creative work, I've always had help. Um, I think there is, you know, we have a sort of big myth of, you know, the heroic artist who struggles with his work and then, you know, through blood, sweat and tears, wrestles this thing into being and they do it all on their own. And, you know, certainly there are days it feels like that. But I've always had help. You know, there's so many things going into a project that you don't know and you can't know. And you need partners along the way to help you get there. Um, you still have to do the work yourself, but there's always resources that you need. And I love collaborative work. And and I love bringing people to the point where they can realize their vision of something. Um, about 100 years ago, I was a teacher. And I sort of <laughs> took Mrs. Kirkendall and I go back a long way. But um, <laughs> You outlived her. So good job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's very satisfying to see somebody sort of have an idea that they don't understand and then help them understand it and make that a thing in the world. So I'm able to work with my clients to really, you know, simply help them get the thing done that they want to get done. And, you know, that can be anything from editorial work or working on things like grants or community engagement working on uh, sort of how you engage with your audience. 
But really, it all comes down to like, I have this thing I want to do, and I just don't know how to do it, or I'm stuck, and I need some help to get past that and get back to making again. Because that's like the best thing in the world when you have that feeling of, you know, oh, I made this thing, it didn't exist, and here it is. Yeah. So who would your ideal client be? Uh, Generally, my ideal clients are people who are super motivated and excited about what they're doing, even if they don't quite understand it or they're not quite sure what that thing is, and people who can hang in there with it. Um, I think that's the hard part about any creative venture is, you know, you have to hang in with it for a long time and during periods of sort of great uncertainty and, you know, periods of loneliness. It's, um, and I think, again, that's very similar to what entrepreneurs do. And, you know, I often use the word project in my work because I, I like to keep that as open as possible. So it's not necessarily that it's an artwork, but it's just a project. So as we all have to engage with our creativity ever more, I like to work with people who are want to use their creativity as well as they can and in the best possible way they can. Gotcha. And for anyone who wants to reach out to you or just simply to follow you, how can they do that? So there are several ways. You can go to my website, which is pmkcreativityguide.com. There you can sign up for my newsletter. I also offer a free 30-minute phone consultation. Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Peter M. Krask. And I also have my website for my personal, my artwork, which is just PeterMKrask.com. Nice. Yeah. And you said you have some beautiful pictures on your website. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah. So yeah, please say hello. I love, I love to talk to people about creativity and what they're working on. It's, it's so interesting how many people are doing so many different things. So there's, I learn a lot in the process as well. So Peter, I have I have a question that I like to ask all of our guests. Uh, we've started doing this recently. Okay. It doesn't have to be financial, although we are a queer money podcast. We focus on kind of that that mentality that helps bring about uh, success. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that is financial success, but not always. If you look back on your life and you look at the things that you've done thus far, what is one piece of advice or thing that you have done that you would pass along or think that would be good for others to do that has brought you some form of success? Wow. Um, huh. I would say, say yes. Most of the biggest successes in my life are the ones that have been the most meaningful and have had the biggest connection to other people have been projects that I didn't know anything about. And someone said, you know, might you be interested in doing this? And I just simply said, yeah, I'll figure it out. And I think that's something that has served me tremendously well and has certainly brought me the greatest satisfaction in the work that I've done. You know, and it's not easy, but there's something to just getting started and sort of not getting too paralyzed by choices or what's the right choice or what should I do or you just got to start and saying yes is the simplest way to to do that awesome thank you very much appreciate oh, thank that. you this is great what a good interesting conversation yeah any final thoughts John 
No, that's it. I appreciate you coming on and teaching us about creative entrepreneurship. Yes, definitely. I'm going to try to be more creative in my entrepreneurship. <laughs> okay. And, and get, start, get started on that finger painting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, Peter. We appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you, Peter, for sharing all your insight on growing and managing our businesses and using our creativity to do just that. Thank you, our listeners, for listening to another episode of Queer Money. To help us help more queer people, please like, comment, and share Queer Money on your favorite podcast platform. Get ready for next week's Queer Money when we'll share how we're able to live for three whole months in Spain. And it's not what you think. Talk to you next time. To learn more about how our sponsor, Capital One, is reimagining their local spaces and experiences to have banking better fit your life, visit www.capitalone.com and follow them on social at Capital One Cafe. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking queer money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.